0: Praise God. Well, turn with me, if you will, to our master text this morning in the book of Romans, chapter 8. And we're going to continue the series that we began um, a few weeks ago called Understanding Our Authority. And again, this is an equipping teaching. uh, Some of the same kind of equipping that Tanja was talking about just now, where uh, this will equip you to rule and reign in life so that you're not taken off guard by some of the things that uh, the devil tries to throw at us from time to time. You know, I also want to say as just a a preface here before we read this master text that uh, although Romans 8 is going to be our umbrella scripture this morning, we're also going to talk a little bit about Job. As a matter of fact, we'll talk a lot about Job uh, this morning. And um, I I was inspired to do this. I was seeking the Lord about what to to talk about this morning. And I was in prayer. And... uh, The Lord reminded me of an email that I got from a newcomer to our church, Clayton Knapp. And he emailed me last week after last week's teaching. I taught on the sovereignty of God last week and what that really means versus what some people think that it means. And Clayton Knapp, he emailed me with some questions about, well, how does this teaching relate to Job then? And I thought it was a really, they were really good questions, by the way. It was a very nice email and uh, I thought, well, you know, if Clayton had these questions, then perhaps other people have them too. So, Clayton, would you raise your hand uh, there in the back with his wife, Heather. Say hi to, to uh, Clayton and Heather. So, Clayton had a little bit of a hand in today's teaching. So, everybody say thank you to Clayton. You. <laughs> Hallelujah. So, we're going to talk about a, l- a little bit about this. All right. So, let's go ahead and read this master text, uh, starting in verse 31 of Romans chapter 8. Would you stand with me and let's honor the reading of the Word of God and show it great reverence here. And we're going to read through uh, verse, what do I have there? Verse 38. Yeah. So here we go. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, verse 39, neither height nor depth nor anything else in in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people say, Amen. amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Praise God. Hallelujah. All right. So with that master text read, I want to give you my thesis for today's teaching and it's this, operating in our delegated authority, which again is what we've been talking about for the last few weeks, operating in our delegated authority will require a confidence in God's intentions toward us. If you're gonna walk in your full authority, you have to be convinced of God's intentions toward you. And that's true because if you're not convinced of the character of God, and His always good intentions toward you, then you can't really understand nor apply the authority of the believer. Isn't that right? Now, we're not going to read directly out of the book of Job like we've done in the past when I've taught on this, uh, but I do want to zero in on just a a few scriptures this morning that I I just really want to focus in on. So in case you're unfamiliar with that story, uh, I know that there's some new believers among us, so just in case you're not familiar with the account of Job. Uh, Let me just give you a really brief overview of that story. So uh, Satan once approached God and asked for permission to afflict this first century man by the name of Job. And uh, so the rest of the book, after those first couple of chapters, details the sufferings of Job and the long conversations that he and his friends have as they try to make sense of what's happened. And the book of Job, by the way, has been used by many well-meaning Christians to paint God as some sort of deity who will turn Satan loose on us every once in a while to uh, teach us patience, okay? Which is a pretty tragic way to make sense of that book, I think. So let's get into this, and we'll swing back around to our master text here in just a little bit. So first of all, the uh, major, first major point I want to make here is that um, much of the account of Job, Job spends a great deal of time justifying himself and defending himself. So if you've read that story before, you, you recognize that when Job begins to answer his friends, he defends himself before them and justifies himself before God. Now, here's the point that I want to make about that, though. Job never approached God, however, on the basis of grace. That's a really important perspective right there. If you read the book of Job as a whole, Job never approached God on the basis of grace. He always appealed to God on the basis of his own righteousness. Of his own righteousness. Now that statement right there may rock your religious paradigm. But let me just justify that here with a scripture from Job. Now, here's probably the most famous passage in the book of Job that you hear, you hear people quote. Uh, Job 13, 15, uh, the A part of it, the first part of that passage says this, Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. And that's where people stop. And we, we hear that passage, we hear that statement, and we go, Oh, what a wonderful statement that is, that even though he He says that even though God slays him, yet he's going to serve him. Well, if you just stop there, okay, that might be a great statement, but folks, you got to take everything in context. you got to read in context and not lift things out of context and build theologies around them. Look at the second half of this passage and see what Job says. Nevertheless, Job says, I will argue my ways before him, and this will be my salvation. What a statement. That's a statement of self-righteousness, ladies and gentlemen. Self-righteousness. He did not appeal to God on the basis of grace. He approached God on the basis of what he felt like he deserved. So, listen... Job's philosophy of life, ladies and gentlemen, is that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. I want to say that again. Job's philosophy of life was that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And that's why Job spent so much time defending himself and justifying himself. And by the way, Job's friends also believed that Because when bad things started happening to Job, they started to accuse him of evil. Now, I want to make a very important statement right here. Anytime you approach God on the basis of what you feel like you deserve, you've just crossed a very dangerous line. Do I need to say that again? Anytime you approach God on the basis of what you feel like you deserve... You've just crossed a very dangerous line. Because really, listen folks, none of you really want to get what you deserve. If you and I got what we deserved, we'd be broke, depressed, sick, and then die and go to hell. But I've got some good news for you today if you're a follower of Christ and if you're a person of faith. So look on the screen. Another very important statement. God does not relate to his beloved based upon what we deserve. Praise God. He relates to us on the basis of covenant with him. Please write that down. Don't forget that statement. He doesn't relate to us based upon what we deserve. He relates to us based upon covenant like Abraham. Abraham didn't do everything perfect. So God didn't treat him based upon the sin that he deserved, but he treated him based upon his relationship with him, which is covenant, praise God. So here, right here, is New Testament thinking right here. This is the way that we should be thinking as new covenant believers. I get what Jesus deserves, not what I deserve. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Yeah. So uh, let's turn our attention to a moment, if I can, To Satan, see, Satan doesn't care what you deserve or not. He just comes to steal, kill, and destroy, doesn't he? Look, a thief isn't concerned about what the owner of a house deserves. He just wants their possessions. So we have to make sure we close any open doors and block any access points that Satan might use to get his foot in the door. And very clearly, Job had a couple of access points. So let's talk about what those are for just a moment here. Job's two open doors. So Job had two unaddressed areas of vulnerability in his life, and they were fear and pride. Fear and pride. All right. So listen, you will never get anywhere with God by defending yourself. You'll never get anywhere with God by defending yourself. It is humility that always gets God's attention. Humility always gets God's attention. See, Job kept defending himself and and really didn't have a heart change until way later in the book, in chapter 42, uh, toward the end of the book is when we finally see Job having a heart change and we see him humbling himself at that point in dust and ashes. And... That humility and repentance is what led to his restoration, which, by the way, relates to another Old Testament passage, Isaiah 66, 2, which says, these are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit. You know what contrite means, don't you? It means to be deeply and humbly sorry for your sins, deeply and humbly sorry for your sins. So these are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. What's that mean, to tremble at God's word? It means basically this, Lord, whatever you say, if you say jump, I'm going to say how high. That's what it means to tremble at his word, that we're quick to respond to God's word. So here's a takeaway from that, ladies and gentlemen. If we want to have more of God's favor in our lives, you need to really listen to this. If we want to have more of God's favor in our lives, we have to be willing to evaluate ourselves and do it very honestly. Evaluate ourselves honestly and stop doing as Job did and stop justifying ourselves. Stop justifying ourselves. We have to be able to look at ourselves and say, okay, why am I in this situation? Why am I not getting the results that I feel like that I should be getting? You know, sometimes we have to face some hard truths about ourselves, don't we? One of you agreed with that statement. Sometimes we have to face some hard truths about ourselves, don't we? Sometimes we have to be willing to face those hard truths and say as that old spiritual song says, it's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. You remember that old song? Praise God, there's a lot of truth to that. You see, sometimes there's things that we're doing or not doing that are blocking the blessings of God in our lives. And we have to be brutally honest with ourselves and not excuse our lack of progress as somehow the sovereign will of God like we talked about last week, right? See, maybe, maybe it's not God's will that you're in the situation that you're in right now. Maybe it's just some foolish decisions on your part or some misguided ideas. And we all have misguided ideas from time to time. We all make foolish choices from time to time. And on that note, I wanted to show you the sign that I talked to you about last week, and um, I, I found that sign. And... Um, Uh, I wanted to show it to you right now because I want to re-emphasize this point that I made last week and also because when I quoted it last week I didn't get the wording quite right so uh, I'm going to show it to you right now because this is really pertinent to our message it says everything happens for a reason sometimes the reason is you're stupid and make bad decisions (laughs) that's right amen amen Okay, and we each of us have to look in the mirror in response to that truth right there because we've all done that. Amen, hallelujah, praise God. <laughs> well, I was talking about the sovereignty of God last week when I was making that point. And, uh, and yeah, everything does happen for a reason, I guess. And the reason isn't necessarily because God ordained it, it's because we made dumb decisions. Okay, had, had really misguided ideas. All right. Well, let's move on to Job's next open door. We can find this referenced in Job 3.25 when Job said, What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. Now, this is so important. It's such an important perspective. See, Job obviously had an open door of fear. So let's talk about this. See, having your focus only on what could go wrong actually is is more faith in Satan's works than it is God's works, ladies and gentlemen. Fear is how we give access to the enemy. Now, again, people that do that show more faith in, in Satan's works than they do God's works. And when we live in fear that way, ladies and gentlemen, we not only hurt ourselves, but listen, we also tend to hurt other people when we live in fear like that. I want to give you an example. I remember when I was a, a young teenager, maybe 14 or 15 years of age, you know, my, my son Drew's age, give or take, and a uh, younger sister and I were going to go out on a, a little excursion with my church youth group, and we were going to go down to a river and have a picnic and play some games and swim in the river. And what, what I didn't know was that my mother, um, even though she was going to let my sister and I go to that youth Audi, um, she told the youth leaders to not let her or I swim. (laughs) Yeah. So there we were watching everyone else swim in the river and having fun on that hot summer day. And we just sat there watching everybody else have fun, just boiling And I don't mean just boiling from the hot weather. I mean boiling on the inside. Okay? Um, Now, my mother, bless her heart, she's in heaven now. She ruined, she didn't mean to, but she ruined our day due to her own fear of the water. See, when my mother was a little girl, uh, she got caught in a whirlpool in a river and nearly drowned. So she had such a petrified fear of water that she never learned how to swim. And she had an especially profound fear of rivers. So she let us go on that youth outing, but she had instructed the youth leaders to not let me or my sister swim in that river. And she didn't tell my sister and me that until uh, we actually got there. And the youth leaders had to tell us, well, your mother said that you can't go swimming. Now, again, my mother wasn't trying to be mean. She was just operating out of great fear. And by doing so, she really wounded my sister and me and made us feel very singled out and very left out. Now, by the way, I want to make a qualifying remark here. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't exercise caution in certain situations. Yeah, you still need to use wisdom. But, folks, that can be taken to a really unreasonable extreme. That can be taken way too far if you're not careful. See, if you're afraid of every little thing, folks, that is not living. That is not living. So another important takeaway here is this, this key point right here. Fear opens the door to the enemy because it's an inverted sort of faith. And let me explain what I mean. So did you know that we give the enemy access to our lives in a variety of ways? The book of Ephesians, as an example, tells us to not let the sun go down on our anger. And if we do that, we give the enemy a foothold. Now, a foothold is a position of gaining greater access and power over someone. That's what a foothold is. And, And fear is another way that the enemy gets a foothold in our lives. You see, both fear and faith cannot exist simultaneously because one or the other is going to dominate eventually. Are you with me? Now, for those of you, I think most of you probably listened to my podcast where I interviewed Tanja, and one of the things that she said in that conversation that really stood out to me was that she had learned over the years the importance of not giving way to fear. And I think that's an important perspective because if you're in fear, you can't possibly operate in any kind of strong faith when the challenges of life hit. An example of that is when Jesus was with his disciples out on the lake in a boat and a furious storm swept down upon them. And in that boat, we see two different emotions at work at the same time. And I think this is kind of interesting. You see the disciples looking at the circumstances, you know, the wind and the waves, and immediately go into panic mode. But then we see Jesus demonstrating the calmness that faith brings by just continuing to recline in the back of the boat. Now, I've often wondered how someone could sleep in the back of a boat, when it's being rocked by the wind and the, ra- and the waves, right? Either he was a really, really sound sleeper or else something else was going on. And uh, I'm just going to go out on a limb here. Here's what I think happened. Okay? I think Jesus was waiting on purpose. Because he wanted to see if dis- his disciples were going to exercise the kind of faith that he had been teaching them to walk in by calming the storm themselves. That's what he was after. I guarantee you that's what he was after because when they cried out to him in fear and he finally calmed the storm, you remember what he did. He turned to the disciples and said, where's your faith? Where's your faith? That's what he was after. He didn't say, oh, you poor little babies, you poor little guys, I'm here now, so all is well. No, he rebuked them. Where's your faith, he said. And folks, that indictment against them is actually an indictment against you and me as well. Where's our faith? Where's our faith? When the storms of life hit, where's our faith? Are we going to just collapse like a house of cards? Or else are we going to stand in the confidence And the calmness that faith brings by assuring ourselves that God will bring us through this and everything will be okay. Amen. With those concepts in mind, I want to transition here and talk a little bit more about the conversation that God uh, and Satan had in the book of Job in those first couple of chapters. And hit some high points about that conversation uh, that are pertinent here as it pertains to understanding the character of God so that we can, again... Walk in our full authority. So, God said to Job, Have you considered my servant Job? Well, I want you to understand that in the Hebrew, you know, Hebrew is such an expansive language, and sometimes, honestly, the translators get it wrong. So if you go back to the Hebrew and you study that out, you find out that this verse could be actually probably translated a little better because this is actually in the Hebrew. It's translated in the past continuous verb, the past continuous verb. So really, it could be better translated like this. Look at the screen. Have you been considering my servant Job? And that puts a little bit of a different slant on what God was saying there. It's almost like God was saying, hey, Satan, what have you been doing? Have you been singling out my servant Job? And we see from the context, that's exactly what Satan had been doing. He had been singling out Job. And evidence of that is in two verses later, when Satan said to God, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? So he was wanting to get to Job, but there was this protective barrier, apparently, that protected Job from what Satan wanted to do to him, or so he thought. And that's a key point. Thought right there. But I want to say this before I get to that. God very likely didn't have a special protective hedge around Job that he wasn't willing to give to other people because God's no respecter of persons. See, the, the, the thing that protected Job, listen, the thing that protected Job was relationship. The thing that protected Job was, you could say it this way, covenant, covenant. There was not a, another man like Job on the face of the earth at the time with the level of relationship and covenant that he had with God. So that's what protected him. Hallelujah. So there is a special place of protection for some people and that place is found in Psalm 91. Let's read a portion of that. First three verses. He who dwells in the secret place Of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver you. And then it goes on and on from there. So you see, if you're seeking God, listen to this. If you're seeking God with all of your heart, And not just living a passive spiritual life like so many people do. If you delight in God's presence, then in that secret place, there's shelter. In that kind of secret place, there's shelter. But if you're just living some passive spiritual life, I don't know that Psalm 91 applies to people like that. Because there's a secret place that It's talking about here. It's not just talking about carte blanche, every Christian on the face of the earth. It's talking about those who dwell in that secret place of the most high. You've got to be seeking God, folks. Let me give you another thought as it relates to this. On another note, let's also consider that perhaps Satan didn't even realize how much jurisdiction he had in Job's case, because it appears that God actually points this out to him. So let's look at that really quick in verse 12 in Job 1. God says, behold, all that Job has is in your hands. All right, now listen, important point right here. Look at the screen. God may have been pointing out that Job was already in Satan's jurisdiction because of the transference of authority in the earth, like we've been talking about throughout this series so far. So some people believe now that um, God actually took down the protective hedge around Job and let Satan just have at it. But Job and the whole world, you see, were already in the grip of Satan because of the transference of authority from Adam and Eve. So God was just reminding Satan, it appears, that, that Job was already in his jurisdiction. Now, You always want to interpret the Bible with the Bible. So in Genesis chapter 16, there's an account that that the wording is really close to this. So we can cross-reference this with Genesis 16. In that account, Abraham's wife Sarah came to Abraham and uh, accused him and told him to do something about her handmaiden, Hagar. You remember this account? Okay. Now, what was Abraham's response? He basically said... Sarah, Hagar is already under your authority. She's already in your hands. He was basically saying, I don't have to do anything about Hagar. She's already under your authority. You do something about her. It's the very same words used there in Genesis 16 that we also see in Job. Isn't that interesting? Okay, same words. So while there's a lot about the This passage in Job that's shrouded in mystery, by the way, I think we can make a good case for the fact that God didn't just give in to Satan and allow Satan to go blow up Job's life just because that wicked one asked him to. Uh, Again, as one who had been granted authority in the earth due to mankind's rebellion, God may have simply acknowledged that uh, Job uh, was already in Satan's jurisdiction. Am I making sense? But hold that thought for a moment, because I'm I'm going to make an important observation about that in just a minute. But first, I want to give you, in a nutshell, the message that the book of Job as a whole offers us, okay? Now, some people mistakenly use the account of Job, by the way, uh, to teach that, well, brother, God works in mysterious ways, and sometimes he'll smite his beloved to teach us something. But... (laughs) That's not at all the message of the book of Job, ladies and gentlemen. Here's the message of the book of Job in a nutshell. You ready? Okay, you really got to lean in on this one. Pay really close attention because this is a really deep truth. If you're not paying attention, you might miss it. Okay, so the message of Job, if you were to distill it down in a sound bite, in a nutshell, here it is right here. God is awesome and we aren't. That's it. That really is it. Okay? So why then does it take 40-some chapters to get to that point? Well, okay, so listen. The book of Job, it's a wonderful book. It's, It's actually a tremendous illustration of how mankind's pride, it leads to us really having a skewed understanding of both us and God. Okay? It's a tremendous illustration of how mankind's pride blinds us to our own frailty and our own ignorance and our own sin. Did you hear what I just said? If you read the book of Job, read it as how it might apply to you. The book of Job is a wonderful illustration of how our own pride blinds us to our own ignorance, to our own frailty, and our own sin. But when we're finally confronted with the awesomeness and the perfect righteousness of God, we have to do as Job did toward the end of the book and slap our hands over our mouths in dismay at how utterly stupid we sound sometimes. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Now, there's another point about Job that I want to bring out here. As I said a moment ago, there's a lot about the book of Job, especially the first few chapters of it, that's shrouded in mystery, um, especially as it pertains to that conversation between God and Satan, and why Satan uh, would come to God, and God would even allow that conversation in the first place, and why Job, or why Satan would ask for permission to afflict Job. And again, it's not entirely clear why they would be having that conversation, um, and by the way, if you didn't know this, Satan also apparently did this with the disciple Peter. Because you remember that, that Jesus said to Peter that Satan had asked for permission to sift him, or to try him, or to tempt him. Do You remember that? But Jesus went on to say, but Peter, I prayed for you. Hallelujah. So God is our intermediary. Jesus is our intermediary. but. Here's the clincher right here. All these other thoughts aside, here's the clincher about the book of Job and how we can apply it today. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, folks, God and Satan are not having these kinds of conversations today. See, now wait a minute. Hold your your applause because I want to finish this thought and then we're going to have a praise break, okay? So the accuser of the brethren has been defeated and the blood of Christ redeems us from all accusations. Now you can praise him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Plus, the Bible tells us that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father and ever lives to make intercession for us. Meaning that he continually stands in the gap and prays for you. Isn't that an amazing thought? Hallelujah. So I think we just need to remind ourselves of these thoughts right here from our master text. So let's read a portion of that again. Verses 33 and 34. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn us? For Christ Jesus who died and more than that was raised to life is at the right hand of God and he is interceding for us. Hallelujah. Praise God. Why then do bad things still happen to God's people from time to time? Well, <clears throat> I think that we can, that can be summed up by saying that uh, there's calamity in the world due to the fact that we're still living in a fallen state. So There's always going to be temptations to sin. There's always going to be trials of various sorts and frustrations of various sorts. And yes, even persecution. And we also have to acknowledge that we all make bad choices sometimes that have consequences. That's part of your problem right there. We make bad choices that has consequences. I told you last week when we talked about the sovereignty of God, if you drive 15,000 miles and never change your oil and you break down to the side of the road and you say, well, God is sovereign, so this must have been preordained. No, it's not, dummy. Change your oil. <laughs> Come on. If you drive, you know, 20,000 miles or no, what, what do tires go these days? Tires go sometimes 50, 60, 70, 80... You know, God blessed me one time with a set of tires, by the way. And it was like, you know, the children of Israel, when they wandered for 40 years and their shoes never wore out. It was one of those types of deals when, you know, Don and I didn't have much early in, in, in our marriage. And I went 120,000 miles on one set of tires and never, never rotated them. Wow. Favor of God. Favor of God. That's grace there, that is grace. I'm telling you. <laughs> that is grace. <laughs> so yeah, so no. Listen, I, I didn't have some spirit of flat tires come upon me. You know, when because when, I have had flat tires before. Um, I remember running over a, a, a big rod one time, um, and uh, just you know, it was about eight inch rod that I ran over, and uh, you know I had to stop, and I was in the business in the middle of a business day, and I was uh, you know dressed in my business attire, and not a good time to have a flat tire. So, you know, I had to kind of strip down a little bit so I wouldn't get my clothes dirty and change my tire on a really, really hot day. And I didn't go, oh, a demon of flat tire must have come upon me. <laughs> no, no, watch where you're going, dum-dum. Don't run over rods next time. Watch where you're going when you turn into a, to a parking lot. So anyway, all right, so sometimes the bad stuff that comes upon us is just we're, we're dumb sometimes. All right. But beyond that, beyond that, listen, sometimes there's a mindset that comes into play. When a person lives with a mindset that God will sometimes hand deliver disease and all kinds of tragedy as some sort of blessing in disguise, see, that sort of inverted faith will open us up at times to satanic assault. On that note, I heard Andrew Womack tell a story one time about a young lady who uh, he knew when he was younger, who prayed for God to give her a disease so that her suffering would draw people to Christ. Okay? And sure enough, she got leukemia and died. Now, I don't think that God answered her prayer, by the way. I think her bad beliefs opened her up to satanic assault. Folks, let's stop basing our beliefs on the bad philosophies of men and learn what the Bible says, for goodness sake. Hallelujah. So you see, when one knows God's word and exercises faith in God's promises, then I believe that slams the door shut on many of Satan's tactics and allows us to live more victorious lives. Wouldn't you agree with that? See, there are dozens of promises in the word of God regarding our protection, our provision, and our healing. But so often, folks, listen, people will set those promises aside in favor of a God gives and God takes away kind of mentality. And again, when we think like that, then I guess anything goes. We open ourselves up to all kinds of possibilities, bad possibilities, I might add. And by the way, that statement... That Job made about God gives and God takes away wasn't even entirely accurate because it wasn't, it wasn't God who took away from Job. Satan did that. Sa- read the context, Satan did that. Okay? I want to transition here right now and, and and start to come down home stretch in the next half hour, 45 minutes or so. <laughs> Come on, listen, some of y'all listen to one of my favorite preachers, Keith Moore. That man can preach for an hour and a half and not miss a beat. And y'all sit through that like it's nothing. So if I go a little longer today, please forgive me, but I'm not going to go that long. I am going to give you a very partial list of what the Bible says about who you are in Christ right now. Because without this biblical mindset, listen, it's next to impossible to walk in your full authority. And it's also very difficult that God's promises apply to you because you'll always be walking around with that worm mentality that we talked about last week. okay? And and that's not who you are anymore in Christ. So let's look at a a few descriptions of who you are in Christ. But before I do that, I want to show you an image of what you thought of yourself before Christ and what Christ, what Jesus, what the Father thought of you before Christ. So take a look at the screen right now. Before Christ on the left, this is how we kind of viewed ourselves. You know, kind of morally the bell of the ball, if you will. The morally speaking, the homecoming king and, king and queen. Oh, you know, I'm all that, right? You know, as a matter of fact, I'll quote a scripture here to you. Um, The book of Psalms tells us that there's an oracle within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for in his eyes he flatters himself too much to hate or detect his sin. That's the way we were before Christ over there on the left when we thought we were all that. But God saw us very differently. God saw us as the living dead God saw us, spiritually speaking, as zombies. Look at Isaiah 64, 6 down there at the bottom of the screen. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. That's what we were before Christ. But listen, when you came to Christ, an amazing transformation happened. Hold on to your seats, because I'm about to give you lots of good news. After Christ... This is how God sees you now. He put his stamp of approval on you. And now he has several things to say about who you are right now. So I'm just going to bullet point, rapid fire, a bunch of scriptures about what the Bible says about who you are in Christ right now. You are, according to Matthew 5:14, the light of the world. You are, according to Romans 6.18, a slave of righteousness. A new creation, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17. A saint, according to Ephesians 1. You are God's workmanship, born anew to do His work, Ephesians 2.10. And according to 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, you are part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. <laughs> 1 Peter 2.11, you are an alien and stranger in this world. 1 John 5.18, you are born of God and the evil one, the devil, cannot touch you. And I'm not quite done. You are an overcomer, the Bible says, of you. And under that umbrella, Joel 3.10 says that you are strong. It says, let the weak say, I am strong. When you feel weak... Say, no, I am strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's what the Bible says about you. You are more than a conqueror, according to Romans 8:37. You're not just a conqueror, you're more than a conqueror. Are you getting happy yet? Second Corinthians uh, uh, 10, verses uh, 3 through 5, and Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. Uh, says that you are a warrior involved in a spiritual conflict. You are able to do all things that you need to do through Christ, according to Philippians 4.13. And you are operating in the delegated authority of Jesus Christ over all the power of the enemy, according to Luke 10.19. And you are blessed with a spirit of power, according to 2 Timothy 1.17. Yes, give Him praise hallelujah now listen I want you to notice what is conspicuously absent in all of those verses okay nowhere in any of those verses does the Bible describe the Christ follower as weak defeated dominated by sin or people who should be full of self pity as a matter of fact I want to make a really strong statement right here are you ready when you read the Bible, you really should start picking up on the fact that in the, the life of the Christ follower, there is absolutely no place for self-pity or self-loathing. Do I need to say that again? In the life of the Christ follower, there's absolutely no place for self-pity or self-loathing. Okay. Now, Now listen, I understand that there's nothing good in us apart from Christ, so I'm not preaching some sort of message of self-exaltation right now, Uh, quite the opposite, as a matter of fact. Um, Apart from Christ, you and I are nothing and can do nothing. That's true. But God clearly sees value in you. He, He also goes on to say that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, okay? Everything that you need to do at any given moment, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. See, God clearly sees value in you and me, or Jesus would have never died on the cross for us, folks, okay? You have eternal value in God's eyes. And for that reason, you can walk with a degree of confidence in this life, not because of what you have to offer, mind you, but because of who lives in you. Hallelujah. And it's for that reason that you should not allow the circumstances of life to trap you in the quicksand of self-pity. Because that's what it is. It's a trap. It's a trap. See, as long as you wallow in self-pity, you're never going to walk in your full authority in Christ or accomplish what God has in mind for you to accomplish. See, if God has enough confidence in you to delegate His authority to you and entrust you with the advancement of His kingdom, then who are you to say? Or who am I to say? No, Lord, I'm not worthy of that. I'm just going to sit here in my little corner and mind my own business. And be a humble little Christian. That is exactly what Satan would love for you to do. See, but God made you a giant killer, a person in in whom he has placed his own spirit. He likes using the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Which is a little bit of an indictment on us. We're the foolish ones he's talking about. God likes using the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So yes, you might not think that you have much to offer in and of yourself, but don't let that stop you for goodness sake. Just let the light of Jesus shine through you to a hurting and broken world around you. And and when you do that, when you make yourself available to God like that, um, then he will do the rest in advancing his kingdom through you and through me. Because listen, folks, the, the advancement of God's kingdom is what this whole thing is all about. That's why God delegated his authority to you. That's why we've been talking about this. So I'm going to leave you with this thought right here out of Isaiah 54:17. No weapon formed against you will prevail or prosper, some versions say. And you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. So, let me close it down with these thoughts right here. We see here in this passage that God has a heart to protect and provide for his people, right? That's his heart, and that's his nature. See, but all that he's looking for are people who will... Totally sell out to him and stop compromising and stop selling themselves short. And and listen, I think I need to make a qualifying remark right here. None of this means that you're not going to face some obstacles and challenges in this life at some point. As a matter of fact, you probably will. But listen, the fact that God calls you an overcomer Listen to this. The fact that God calls you an overcomer means that there has to be things that you will have to overcome from time to time. Did you hear what I said? The very fact that God calls you an overcomer means by implication that there are going to be things that you're going to have to overcome from time to time. That's what it means to be an overcomer. Praise God. You can't be victorious without some battles to fight once in a while, for goodness sake. Come on. Let's apply some common sense to this. You know, for those of you that follow sports, if one team goes out on the football field and there's no opposition, and they win by default, that's really a deflating defeat because they didn't have to overcome anything. The most elating defeats is when they overcome some obstacles and they stand on the other end of the clock when it turns zero and their team is the victorious one. That is when the glory for our victory comes. So don't ever think you're going to float through this life not ever having to experience some obstacles and challenges along the way. The very fact that you are an overcomer means that you will have some things to overcome, but you will overcome them if you have the right mindset going in. Because in all these things, you and I are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do you believe that? Yes. Hallelujah. All right. So here's what we're going to do. There's something about music and singing that galvanizes a certain concepts into our heart and mind. So we're going to end our service with a song today. We don't usually do that. But we're going to end our service with a song today. And those of you that have attended for a while, um, you know this song, uh, More Than Conquerors. By Stephen Curtis Chapman We sing this song here a lot But for those of you that are new You may not know that song But I really want you to pay special attention To the words of this song And sing them with gusto Get it in your spirit Because this is who you are in Christ now today Amen Do you guys got that ready? Okay, stand with me if you will So I'm just going to step aside And we're going to sing that with all of our hearts Amen Here we go